Well, tonight, I want to start out with a, a confession uh, and tell you that there are times I feel really overwhelmed. Am I the only one? Do you ever feel overwhelmed? Do you ever feel like, oh, I got a problem, and you're really working on solving that big problem, and then another one pops up, and then another, and another, and now you got several things going on. That's overwhelming for me, and I don't know if that happens to you, but I know it happens to me on a regular basis. So tonight I want to speak on a subject that I believe addresses that. If you feel overwhelmed, I pray tonight's message will help you to feel unoverwhelmed, okay? John Wesley, the great uh, 18th century revivalist, uh, John Wesley said this, John Wesley said, I'm never in a hurry because I never do anything that I cannot accomplish without perfect calmness of spirit. Well, that's just fine for John Wesley. I'm not there. I'm not there yet. I admire that quality. I wish that I had that quality all the time of never being ruffled and never feeling uh, overwhelmed. You know, just right now, living in the times we're living in, for our culture, these are unprecedented times for our culture. Even just everyday life can be overwhelming right now in our culture. If you're a mother, you're a mother, and you got a beautiful little baby, and formula, baby formula is hard to find, that's overwhelming. Uh, Inflation, that's overwhelming for all of us because it costs us a lot more to do everyday things and we still all have to make the ends meet. That can be very overwhelming. I suppose in some ways financial stress is one of the worst stresses of all. It can be very overwhelming. And you know, we'll tell you all something. So just navigating everyday life can be a little hard these days feel a little out of control sometime. Like, I know what I got up to do today, but 40 things happened I didn't expect. And it's, I'm not, I know I'm not in control here, God. Right. Now, ideally, I would like to say, oh, I'm under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's what I want. That's good, but, you know, I don't always feel like uh, that's the case. I feel out of control. Like, I'm not getting everything done. I was supposed to get done. Now, I'm going to tell y'all, I'll start off tonight by telling y'all something you don't know about me, most of you. Probably only my wife knows this. There was a time right after I got out of high school that I was a semi-professional juggler. And I used to juggle, and man, I made a lot of money for a dumb 19-year-old. I mean, I could juggle, so I'd go do all these events and uh, birthday parties and events, and I thought I was making a lot of money because uh, I would do a show and I would get like 40 bucks for 30 minutes. That seemed like a fortune to me. And then I was at this store one day where I bought juggling equipment. The guy said, I got a job for you if you want it. I said, sure. He said, it's an event over in Irving, blah, blah, blah. He said, how much you want? I said, I'll do it for $50. He said, he gets on the phone. I hear him. Yeah, he'll do it. Yeah, he'll, he'll take 120 bucks. Hangs up. I'm like, and he said, I'll take 20, you can have the 100. 
I learned something that day. But I was a juggler, and uh, I was able to juggle uh, balls and knives and clubs and rings. One time I even did a gig at a birthday party at a bowling alley, and I juggled bowling pins. I was somewhat more strapping then. I don't know if I could lift a bowling pin right now. But I have to tell you about that feeling, and, and I could personally juggle four objects. I could do four things. Now, there are jugglers who can do, you know, like, I don't know what the record is, but 11, 15, 16 objects. That's amazing. I could only do four. But I have to tell you, sometimes life feels like we're juggling, doesn't it? And even at this stage of my life right now, a lot of times it's like I'm dropping balls. There's way too much stuff up in the air here, and I cannot manage it. So tonight I basically want to speak on the subject of simplicity, not feeling overwhelmed. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, I love to pray. I love to pray. I love to seek God. I love to walk with Jesus, but I don't pray as much as I want every day. Now, some days, if my workload is not just crushing me, I, I get to do what I call praying through, praying out, and I'm not going to tell you how long that is, but I like a good long time to seek God uh, in the morning, but I don't always have that. Say, Brother Ken, you're a preacher. Do you pray every day? I do, but not, uh, some days not nearly as much as I would like. I lose whole days. I travel Becky and I have traveled all over the planet. Sometimes we get up in the morning. We've, there's been times we get up in the morning literally at 3 a.m. to get to an early flight. And you get on the airplane and you go here and, you go, and it takes more than 24 hours just to get where we're going with layovers and stuff. That's happened many, many times. Then we started going to Africa. That takes 18 hours of just flying time, much less the layovers. I lose whole days there. When we leave here to go to Africa, I think it takes two days before, from where we leave our, leave our house to where we get, where we're going in Africa, two days have gone by. So I pray a little bit, but certainly not the way I like to pray. Things come, things get in the way. Uh, I used to have a pastor friend, he always called it the tyranny of the urgent. You know what I'm talking about? In other words, stuff comes up that you didn't plan and you got to take care of it whether you had 20 other things to do that day or not, the tyranny of the urgent. And for me, the most, uh, the thing that overwhelms me most is ministry. I know a lot of people think, oh, being a preacher, woo, that must be an easy gig. Mm -mm. I can testify. I bet Pastor Martin knows that probably trying to go to sleep and get ready to preach in the morning. All of a sudden there's a call at, 1 a.m., got to go to the hospital or something, something's happened to somebody. Ministry is a lot of pressure, I have to say, and uh, it's huge for me. I don't feel like I do it very well, to be honest with you. I don't know how to manage it sometimes, and I'm dropping balls. And it, it, it weighs on you, let me just say that. It's overwhelming. And uh, Becky and I travel all over the world. And not, not just that, we publish a monthly magazine. That's what it looks like. Some people publish a monthly magazine. That's their whole job. 
But on top of that, we travel and are gone for, we, we, well, I'm going to talk about that, but we've done like 6,000 miles just in the last couple of months in our car and been to a bunch of states and we write books and I did want to talk about that. I want to talk about this book. This is our newest book. And I feel always a little nervous and squeamish about selling our books because we don't care about the money. We just want to get a message out. But this book is called Praying Bigger Prayers. And it's a book. It's the first book so far in 32 years that Becky and I wrote together. So Becky and I both can uh, put in on this book, Praying Bigger Prayers. Here's what it's about. Expanding your devotional life beyond your wildest dreams. Do you believe that's possible? Amen. There are some verses in the Bible, and they're in this book. And if you read those verses, you'll realize your prayer life can go beyond your wildest dreams. And it's $10, but as always, if we got a book table out there tonight. As always, if you want to learn to pray and you want this book and you don't have $10, then please just accept it as a gift from, from Becky and I. But get this book, Praying Bigger Prayers. So I'm going to talk about ministry now and uh, just a little bit. And the reason I wanted to talk about that is for me, even when ministry's going great, it's no less overwhelming. And we just got back from doing a lot of miles, 6,000 miles in the last couple months. And we were in upper Michigan and we did two tent crusades and it was just the most beautiful thing as I would preach God just, we were in tiny little towns. We didn't have big crowds because we were in tiny little towns in northern Michigan. But as I would preach, I would see people just weeping. God's spirit was moving on them and they were weeping. And when I would give the invitation, people would just stream down to the front to get saved. And we saw a lot of people come to Jesus at those crusades. But, uh, and then we just got back from a uh, uh, Outreach we do every single year. We go to northern Indiana and we feed veterans at their, re, their veterans reunion, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a week. That's a lot of work just right there. But we feed them breakfast, lunch, and dinner and they sit under our tent all day. And this outreach has been going on for 17 years. And Becky and I just found out about it three years. We've been every year. But this year was a beautiful harvest. You know, 73-year-old men, which is a lot of the Vietnam veterans, 73, 75, 78 years old, that's, and they are, they are literally warriors. They've bled and they've watched friends die. That is not a demographic of people who just swing their heart wide open and just talk easily or show weakness or emotion. But I tell you what, this year there was weeping under our tent. As the Holy Spirit moved on people, we had one lady, one of the veterans' wife, and she just, we were talking to her, and she just couldn't stop crying. And she said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just, I just can't stop crying. I must be really tired. We were thinking, you're not tired. Jesus is, Holy Spirit's talking to you. Got to pray with her about receiving the assurance of salvation to live with Jesus forever in heaven. Another veteran, the, that guy in the picture, I put him on there on purpose. His name is Stan, 
And Stan stood there this year, and he pointed at a table, because we, we feed him, so there's picnic tables under the tent. And Stan pointed at a table, he said, that table, that table, right there, that table last year, I prayed and I got born again. And he said, I've been to church every day this year. I mean, every Sunday this year. And then he said, I even go to Bible study. He was exuberant with the joy of Jesus at getting saved. So it was a beautiful harvest. But I said all that to say this. Even when ministry is going great, I feel no less overwhelmed. It's still crushing the pace we keep and the workload and all the other stuff. So let me move on. I talked about this another time years ago. Uh, but right when I got out of high school, not only was I juggling, I took flying lessons. And I made a point one night talking about my flying lessons, but tonight I'm going to make a different point. But uh, I learned to fly, and I don't know if you've ever, if you, ever take, if you take a paper airplane, okay, and you throw that paper airplane and you give it some force, at some point it runs completely out of airspeed, and when it does, what does it do? It just falls. When it runs out of airspeed, it falls. Now, in aviation, that's called stalling. That don't mean your engine died. It just means you have no airspeed, and you're going to fall. At that moment, you could fall any direction. When that aircraft runs out of speed, you could fall forward. You could fall sideways. You could slip backwards and slide, as it's calling. You could fall this way. You don't know which way it's going to fall. When you run it completely out of airspeed, it stalls out, and it just plunges toward Earth. You can even fall into a spin, and that is literally fatal if you don't know how to get out of that. And so when you're learning to fly, you practice that over and over and over. Your instructor says, I want, to, want you to practice some stalls. Okay, I know what that means. For the next 20 minutes, we're going to be pulling back the throttle and pulling back the yoke and just falling and, and making sure we know how to get it out of whatever attitude it gets in. Now, the beautiful thing was this. I mean, we would do it so much that my instructor would look over at me. I don't know if you've ever been inside of a small Cessna. They're about that big. Very small. My instructor would look over. Your tummy okay? I said, yes, sir. Okay, do another one. So he always wanted to make sure my tummy was okay. Wonder why. Anyway. So the beautiful thing was, put the airplanes up. There we go. That, my friends, is a Cessna, and that's what I learned to fly in, a Cessna 150. Now, the beautiful thing about a Cessna 150, uh, it, uh, pretty much all the Cessna aircraft with the top wing, the beautiful thing about that aircraft is it is so well designed that if you, can, you get upside down, sideways, sliding, even in a spin, let go of it and it'll fly itself right out back to straight and level all by itself. In other words, it's so perfectly uh, aeronautically engineered that if you just, no matter how messed up you are, you let go of that thing, and it'll, it'll find straight and level all by itself. Woo, I'm looking for the Christian version of that in life. Amen. <laughs> you just, but you know what? When you trust God, you can do that. You're, no, I don't care how overwhelmed you are, how much pressure you're under. You can just let go of it, trust God, and he will get you back to straight and level where you need to be. So, 
I personally have a literal craving for the simple. I have a craving for simplicity because I need it. I don't operate. Hey, folks, my wife will tell you. You know how to overwhelm me when I first get up? I got to figure out what I want to eat for breakfast. That overwhelms me when I first, oh, man. I don't know. I mean, it just overwhelms me. But, folks, I have a literal craving for simplicity because I need it. But more than that, I have a craving for simplicity for the people I preach to. Whether I'm preaching in a church or under the tent or to the vets or on a college campus, I don't want to go use a bunch of big words to impress them. I want to use the simplest, easiest thing there is for them because I want to make sure they understand it. And you can ask the poor Poor people who travel with me, and there are several of them. I've got a guy we've traveled with for years on college campuses. I've got my friend Tim, who we do all the tent ministry. You've got to ask all these people, and my, my beautiful sweet wife, you, people who travel with me, I'm sure that after a certain amount of time, they get so tired of hearing me preach the message of the prodigal son. Because I preach it everywhere I go all the time. Why do I do that? Because I have found no better message that conveys the gospel and God's ministry of reconciliation. I mean, they make fun of me. Are you preaching on the prodigal again tonight? Yes, because there are lost, unchurched sinners here tonight, and they need to be brought back to God. They need to be reconciled to God, and that's the the most understandable thing I could do. I heard a great, great, famous preacher one of the most famous preachers on planet earth when he was still alive. And he talked about when they do their book edits, like when Becky and I do a book, when we finish writing it, we go over it about 10 times just to get it smooth. 10 times we go over and over and over. He said that one of the edits they do is to take out any word they think people might not understand. Jesus said this, fruitful soil, the good soil is those that hear and understand. So we want our audience to understand, amen, what we're saying. I don't want to impress them with a bunch of Hebrew and Greek they don't know about. I want to say something to them they can totally understand. So I crave simplicity for that reason. I remember years ago, somebody had had some big teaching going around, a really famous person, and it was really complex. I mean, it was famous back then. People would write all their new revelations about prayer and stuff. And uh, they wrote this book, and you know, and I, I don't really know what it was, but it was, it was going around, and everyone was talking about it. And, and uh, we were pastoring the time out there in Mount Pleasant after you guys. And uh, we had this girl named Mickey Sloan. And, and Mickey said, and you know, like the book was basically, or the teaching was like 48 48 steps to always getting your prayers answered. You know, some really overwhelming, complex thing. Took about three months to figure out how to get your prayers answered. And I remember that was going around, and I remember Mickey just looked at Becky and I, and she was in a crisis, and she said, I don't have time for all that. I need my prayer answered today. Let me give you a good one. Let me give you a simple one. I have come to rely on this prayer, especially when I get all these problems stacked up bunch of problems stacked up and I can't see out and I don't know how God's going to work it out and I'm trying to struggle and get out of this and live by faith and please Jesus I love this are you ready for it 
This is not going to appear on the screen. You know why? Because it's so simple it doesn't even need to be up there. This is not 340 steps to perfect prayer. It's just a beautiful prayer right out of Psalm 34, 6. It says, this poor man called and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all of his troubles. That's the one I fall back on when I'm overwhelmed. I go outside and I just say, God, help me, Lord Jesus. I'm calling out to you. Save me from all my troubles. Pretty soon the airplane gets straight and level again because God is faithful. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. Y'all got that? Psalm 34, 6. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all of his troubles. You got troubles you need delivered out of? Call upon the name of the Lord. So I'm simple, not just in, I I have to be simple in my theology. I want to be simple in my theology, simple in my beliefs, simple in uh, what I take away from the word of God. And and let me explain that. Even in the first century when the Bible was still being written, there was a group called the Gnostics. And Gnostics and Gnosticism, the word means knowledge, just means knowledge. But what the Gnostics believed in was what was called secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. That evangelist, he doesn't have the secret knowledge. Pastor Mark, he doesn't have the secret knowledge. The Apostle John, and this was a big group making big waves in the first century. They had what was called secret knowledge. It was about personal secret revelation that only they had. And the Apostle John didn't have it and Peter didn't have it. They had their own secret knowledge of God. Today we call them snowflakes, I think. Anyway, <laughs> Flake, they were flaky. They were goofy. They were weird and they were wrong. And if you read a lot, one of their things was, one of their main things was this. Jesus wasn't real. This is actually Gnosticism. It's what it taught. We thought he came down here and did this stuff, but really it was just an apparition, just a vision of him floating around doing stuff. He wasn't really here. Ooh, that's deep. That's secret. Dumb, not true. But people are attracted to that kind of stuff. And so you, you read a lot of New Testament, you can't figure out why they keep talking about his physical death on the cross. And if all, all those who say that Jesus came in the flesh, that's, uh, the apostles say that's true. That's what they were going against, is this secret fake Jesus who was floating around. Well, we still live in a day and time when people make up their own secret Jesus. Are y'all getting this? Amen. <clears throat> And I can remember times when it was extremely popular for people to have what they called new revelation. I mean, every week, somebody came along, every TV preacher, they had new revelation, and everyone passed around these new revelations. Hopefully, a lot of y'all are too younger to remember that time, too young to remember all that, but, oh, it was going everywhere, new revelation. And I remember we would have friends, and they would be begging us to understand their new revelation. I mean, just like 30, 40 minutes after dinner. Oh, no, no, no. You're not getting it. No, here, listen to me again. I've got this new revelation. You've got to hear this. And, and, you know, they could see by the look on our face. Huh? And they're like, you're not getting it. What they didn't know, as soon as we got in the car, I tell Becky, not only did I not get it, I don't want it. I don't need some weird, flaky, new thing. I need the real thing. 
And now we're going to see what that is. So let me just read some scripture tonight. Let me start with Revelation chapter 2. Now I'm just going to give you a little background. I'm only going to read one verse here. But in uh, the second chapter of Revelation, Jesus has written seven letters to seven real churches, seven real pastors, and said, I, I, you're doing that right, you're doing that right, you're not doing that right. But they were from Jesus saying, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. So when he gets to the second chapter, he gets to a church called Thyatira. And in Thyatira, he says, you're doing good, you're persevering, I see your work, you're doing really well, but you've got this woman there named Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she is teaching you a bunch of hooey. Can I say hooey in church? Is that okay? She's teaching you a bunch of nonsense. And he says, as a matter of fact, her teaching is leading you into idolatry and sexual immorality. Can you imagine a new revelation that taught church people how to get into sexual immorality? <clears throat> Disapproved by Jesus. So Jesus is addressing that. And in verse 24, this is what he says. Now he says, as he addresses this, this new revelation. I don't know if this woman's name was, her mama really named her Jezebel, or if it was just a Jezebel spirit. But she thought she was a prophetess, and she would teach in all this personal revelation that wasn't right. But not everybody in the church went along with it. And so in verse 24, this is what Jesus says. Remember, Jesus is the one uh, saying this to these churches. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Tyra, who have not followed this false teaching, deep truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually, I will ask nothing more of you. He says, I just want you to hold on to what you have. In other words, hold on to the real thing. Don't go chase it off after the weird flaky stuff. Just hold on to the word of God. And he says to them, you know, he says, <clears throat> they've got these teachings and they call them deeper truths. And Jesus called them the depths of Satan, actually. Now tonight you'll notice on the screen I use the NLT a lot tonight. I use the NLT because I'm trying to be simple, okay? Is that a, okay tonight? Now look, they had the same, now the rest of most of the time we're going to stay here in Colossians. But in Colossians, apparently there were some similar things going on and Paul addressed it. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Colossians 2, Paul said this, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and not... Uh, and are from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Paul said these philosophies were chasing around. And I, I don't waste your time, but believe me, you can get on YouTube and you can chase these kind of things all day long. There are so many of them flying around on YouTube. Weird and I, I've known people. I knew two guys, two young men who came to me and said, Brother Ken, we want you to help us in ministry. We want you to mentor us. We want you to teach us about ministry. And you know what? Both of these guys were attracted to nothing but weird stuff. They never want to talk about the cross. They never want to talk about the prodigal son. They never want to talk. They said, oh, now I know this verse says that, but really it. And they always were attracted to the weird stuff. Am I the only one or do y'all know people like that? <laughs> they just go after the weird stuff. Well, Paul said, don't. Don't go after the weird stuff. And he said, he said, these are philosophies and 
from high-sounding nonsense. And there's a lot of that still going on. A lot of people want to make the gospel match the afternoon talk shows. And so they have to work really hard to do that. And so they're going to, I know this verse says don't commit adultery, but what it really means is you can. I mean, in other words, you got you to do crazy stuff to make this stuff match. Don't even waste your time. So Paul was addressing, addressing that here in Colossians. And in the second chapter, a little farther down, I'm going to read quite a few verses here, but I want you just to listen to them. Verse 16 through 20. <clears throat> so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies and Sabbaths. For these are rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying, we have had a vision about, this, about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, uh, have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. Verse 20, you have died with Christ, and you have been set free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following this world's rules? You know, most of it is just, it's just, it's everywhere. And most of it is just psychobabble dressed up in Christian clothes. And Paul said, don't follow these philosophies and these things, all these complex things, giving you all these extra rules. Paul is saying, if you read this passage and you see it over and over, Paul is saying, what you need is Jesus. Believe in Jesus in simplicity. God, all the fullness of God in a human body. And on the cross, Jesus took your sins away. Believe in it. A few years ago, Oprah Winfrey uh, was telling a lot of people that they needed to get this great book. And the book was called The Secret. You don't need the secret. You need the gospel. Amen. Now I want to read Colossians 1.15 through 22. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. And Paul addresses it. Paul just brings it all down. This is what he says in Colossians 1, 15 through 22. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, and he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, and that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. And once, you are, and once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. People don't understand that. I tell them all the time when I'm talking to them, they're wanting to believe in anything but 
Jesus. On college campuses where I go, they'll argue with you for three hours. They don't, they'll believe in anything but Jesus. And after a while, I try to be very patient and let them have their say. After a while, I say, you don't want to find God for the same reason a thief doesn't want to find a policeman. And that's what he says here. He says people, that they become enemies of God because of their evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through his death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I know that's quite a lengthy passage, and it doesn't sound like the simplest passage, but let me just say this. Let me interpret it for you. Jesus, he is above all. Everything was made by him, for him, through him. He has the supremacy. He is the head of the church. He's the head of the body. What you need is Jesus. Amen. That's what you need. That's all you need. And Paul said that by his physical death, uh, by his physical body through his death, that he said that because of the Gnostics. He said they, that, that the cross is what saves you when Jesus died because he really was here in a real body. <clears throat> Let me read you another beautiful verse I love. Colossians 2, 3. In whom are hidden, in the whom is Jesus, if you read the whole passage, in Jesus, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all hidden in Jesus. Brother, oh brother, help me. Please, brother, show me. How can I know God? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Amen. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Do you get it? He's the visible image of the invisible God. What's God like? Look at Jesus. It's simple. If I have something perplexing me, I just go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I look at Jesus. Oh, that's how God is right there. I see it. I just hear people say these kind of crazy things. Well, you know, brother, I just think, you know, wow, man, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I think it's probably like, the truth of God is probably still hidden like in a cave somewhere in the Himalayas and we hadn't found it yet. Wrong! No, no, no. It's on full display. The fullness of the Godhead bodily is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have found all there is to know about God when we see Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's all in Jesus. All the wisdom and knowledge you could ever seek is in Jesus. You know, I learned when I was in high school, I took two years of German. And uh, my teacher was sweet and I liked her. Then I went and lived in Germany for a while and came home. I met her one time. First thing she said to me, I'm so sorry. Because Americans teach languages in a dumb way. I sit there in German class. How many of you ever had Spanish? A lot of, how many of you speak Spanish? No problem. No right, right, right. Because in America, we don't know how to teach languages. My best friend when I lived in Germany was a guy who was a drug pusher before he got saved. He was in all remedial classes in school. He spoke seven languages, though. They know how to do it over there. Over here, I sat there in that class for two years. And all we talked about was grammar and grammar structure. And all we talked about was verb endings. And is this, is this in the dative case or the accusative case? Oh, I'm not sure. I think that verb ending has to be changed because German has one of the most complicated uh, grammar structures you could find. 
very difficult as far as its grammar structure. When I got to Germany as a young man, I couldn't say 12 things. I don't think I could say more than one or two sentences. All they taught you is, Ich heiße Ken Dornicker. My name is Ken. Wo ist die discotheque? Where is the discotheque? I, I don't know why that was always in every language lesson back then. I guess they thought that was important, that we knew how to ask, where is the discotheque? But I couldn't talk. I couldn't speak. Now I was living in, a, living in the land of that language. I couldn't talk to anybody. I learned nothing in two years of high school German. But you know what? Seven months later, I was teaching and preaching in German. And I didn't study any more grammar. I just listened to what people were saying and I repeated it. You know what? The amazing thing is, three-year-olds don't learn grammar. They just learn to talk. We can give them some grammar later, but when they're three, I want a ham sandwich. <laughs> they learn to talk. They learn to communicate. You want to diagram sentences in German or Spanish or Norwegian or whatever language? You want to learn to do all that? Fine. But I got news for you. 99% of the people on planet Earth can't diagram a sentence. I know I've been there. But you know what? They can all talk to each other. They can all communicate. You, you need to learn a language. My point is this. There's two approaches to learning a language. You can just like OD on grammar, or you can just learn it like every baby does. You just listen and repeat, listen and repeat. I tell Becky all the time, honey, just listen and repeat. We go to Germany, and that girl, she'll tell you all day long, I can't speak German, I can't get it, I don't know what to do, but let me tell you, when she wants a cup of coffee, her German kicks in. <laughs> she walks right up there and says, ich möchte gerne ein Tasse Kaffee. She can speak it like a baby. And it also works at the ice cream stand. Oh, ich möchte gerne eine Kugel Walnuss und eine Kugel Erdbeer. She knows how to say the flavors in German. Did you ever learn grammar? No, she just learned it like a baby. My point is, there's two approaches. Don't take the complicated approach to spiritual things. Jesus advocated that we have childlike faith. I'm not saying don't go deeper with God. I'm not saying don't learn and grow in the grace of God. I'm just saying take the, the uh, easier approach. This is the childlike approach. Now I want to close with this tonight. Not only do I want to be simple in my doctrine, and what I mean by simple is uh, I want to understand it and I want to communicate it in such a way that other people can understand it. Now y'all may give me a D minus tonight. I don't know, but I hope I'm being clear. But I also don't want to overcomplicate my relationship with God. I think people overcomplicate their relationship with God and they are burdened down by a bunch of rules and a bunch of stuff they think they got to do and a bunch of stuff they, they, they got to earn and they're not good enough and they don't, they don't do it. They can't measure up and they feel like a stepchild and their, their relationship with God is overcomplicated. So I just want to read a couple of verses that speak to that issue. Love this verse in Micah, a couple of verses, Micah 6, 6 through 8. And so Micah is speaking, and this is what he says. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Now understand in the Old Testament, their way of approaching God was to bring calves or bulls or sheep or lambs and sacrificing them. Or they would bring cooking things like oil and flour and those were offerings to God. So this is what he is saying. And he says, what do I have to do to come before the exalted God? What does God really want from me? He says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, he feels guilty. He feels like uh, I've sinned. There's sin in my soul. What do I got to do, God, to get out of this? And, and what is all these things he names? Basically, they're things that, they're things that he, could, he couldn't possibly have. He didn't have 10,000 rams. He didn't have 10. Who has 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Do you? I don't. I don't have 10, if I got to have 10,000 rivers of olive oil, I'm never going to get close to God. And he says, is this what I got to have? 10,000 rivers of olive oil to present to the exalted God? And then he goes all the way and says, maybe I have to sacrifice my own child for the sin of my soul. But look at verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Oh, I love that, folks. And every day that I get up, that's my goal. I don't always do as good as I want to do, but when my feet hit the floor in the morning, Lord, I want to walk humbly with you. Can Ken Dornicker understand that? Yeah, I think I kind of get that. I got to walk humbly with God today. That's all I got to do. Just walk humbly with God. And he says, love mercy, loving mercy, to act justly. That just means doing right, to walk humbly with your God. I'm going to close with one last scripture here in 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 3. And to be very, very honest with you, um, this passage is not the easiest in the Bible. You've got to really start in uh, chapter 10 to follow the context and all the way through 11. But these verses right in the middle of all that uh, thing that Paul is he's doing something called defending his ministry. In other words, there were people who said, you're not legit. Your ministry doesn't count. Uh, you're not doing it right. And so Paul is defending himself and his ministry in the middle of all that. And then this is something that comes out right there in the middle of that whole thing. And I'm only going to read two verses. Paul says, and he's talking to the Corinthian church. These are people he's led to Jesus, a church he planted. And he says, I'm anxious for you with deep concern, for the deep concern of God himself. Anxious that your love should be for Christ alone, just as a pure maiden saves her love for the one man, for one man only, and the, for the one who, who will be with the one who will be her husband. Y'all maybe wonder, why is he struggling tonight? Because I didn't put my notes too big enough font tonight. Sorry. <laughs> For the one who will be uh, her husband. But I am frightened, fearing that in some way you may be led away from your pure, simple devotion to our Lord, just as Eve was deceived by Satan in the Garden of Eden. Folks, right in the middle of all this, Paul says, Oh, I just feel like Satan is pulling you away. From one simple thing, 
being in love with Jesus. Pure. Uh, other, vers other versions of it say pure, uh, sincere. But this version says pure, simple devotion to Jesus. I don't know that I've done it that well tonight. But if I can wrap up this message, it's this. You don't need a million and one complicated steps. You don't need rivers of olive oil. You just need to love Jesus. And that beautiful passage from Colossians 1, he just says, everything revolves around Jesus. And when you do that, your little Cessna will fly straight and level when you just love Jesus. Just love Jesus. You get a little overwhelmed. Oh, I call out to you, Lord Jesus. And he heard me and he delivered me from all my troubles. So just walk simply, walk humbly with God. Love Jesus. And I think uh, you'll come out all right. God bless you, God.